Jesus, it's one thing for you to reign above it all, and it's another thing for you to reign above over each of our lives, right? And so we just come to you today in a posture of submission to you and surrender to you. Just a reminder to us that, reminder to me that Jesus is Lord and I am not. So as we open up the scriptures this morning, would you come and would you speak and would you move? We pray these things in Jesus' name. And amen. amen. Since I opened the Halloween can of worms, let me see if I can close it, okay? Just for a second. Just for a second. So Christian freedom is important. Paul says, everything is lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial right? Uh, and so you got to go where your conscience leads you, right? You, you, what is key is that you don't offend somebody else's, what is key is that you don't offend your own conscience, and ideally in the same process that you're not offending somebody else's conscience, right? So there have been uh, conversations in my life around Halloween where others have kind of expressed a more tender conscience about that, and I've thought that was stupid at certain points, um, what's wrong with a little bit of spooky? But I, I think, I don't know if it's having like a really sensitive toddler or kind of some of the things that we've just been engaged in over, as we become more and more like committed to a missionary lifestyle. But we kind of have started to see that, um, you know, Paul says that uh, even the devil can clothe himself as an angel of light. And I think the way that he does that during Halloween is by clothing himself as cute somehow we've turned like scary into cute or sometimes it's just straight up scary so last night Steph and I are watching something on Hulu and twice there was this ad for a movie that I, I have no other category to describe it than it was like literally demonic I mean it was about demonic possession and all of these things and I could you like it's and it's if you have Hulu you know this you can't fast forward through commercials right so you're kind of being subjected to this thing. So we're both putting pillows in front of our faces and we're singing, Jesus, Jesus, how? And you laugh, but I'm just like, I don't even want to hear this stuff because first of all, generally, I just need to sleep tonight. I'm not good at being scared. But secondarily, I'm like, I don't know what is like this thing barging into my house. And so if you want to celebrate Halloween and be scary and be spooky, that's great. Don't do that here at Fall Festival, FYI, one. Um, but go where your conscience leads you. As for me and my house, we will be dressing up as Star Wars characters. Can I get an amen, right? That's, that's, that's the biblical way to do it, really. Um, but I, I, the reason I bring that up is because when we find ourselves in this series on celebration, it's not that we don't know how to celebrate. It's that we've not really learned or been taught how to celebrate the right things because our calendar, and we'll get to this by the end of the series, our calendars do not revolve around the story that Jesus is telling. Our, our calendar revolves around the story that the target dollar spot is telling, right? You know, so, and that Hobby Lobby is telling, like in two-month earlier intervals, right? So, right, and so it's this kind of pace of Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Valentine's Day, Easter, you know, somebody out there is trying to make just a couple bucks off a of sweetest day in the middle of that, and, um, and so how do we wrap our lives around the story of Jesus and celebrate the things that Jesus celebrates. Because we've even been thinking a lot in our house about just Philippians 4 says 
you know, whatever is wholesome, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, think about those things, right? I think that's a gateway into the celebration lifestyle of Jesus, where we're celebrating the things that Jesus is inviting us to celebrate. So it's not about not celebrating. And in fact, we're going to come after all the party poopers and Debbie Downers today. That's where the word of challenge will lie. Hopefully calibrating challenge and invitation a little bit better than last week. He said, not looking at the author of the reconnect this week. No, okay, 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 we appreciated. We appreciated the, the vulnerability because it's hard. It's a journey. It's a journey. No, I appreciated it. It's good. It's good. It's good that a reconnect every once in a while be like, that's hard, right? Because, yeah, so, um, so hopefully calibrating a little bit better this morning. We're going to be in Exodus 19 and then in Acts 2. But we're going to just, so put your finger in Exodus 19, okay? Um, but I actually, I want to just start by talking about the feast that we're looking at this week, which is called the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks is, as you count it, the fourth celebration or festival that God's people are commanded to celebrate in Leviticus 23. That's where kind of our, all of these celebrations that we're looking at emerge. So, Kristen did Passover, and we've kind of just chosen to skip over the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sorry, but not sorry. Um, last week, we did the Feast of First Fruits, and then what comes next is the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks is found in Leviticus 23, 15 through 22. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but just here are a few highlights. So the Feast of Weeks is called the Feast of Weeks because it occurs seven weeks, seven times seven weeks, seven times seven days, or seven weeks after. Let me get my math right. Let's slow down, right? Seven times seven days, or seven weeks, after the Feast of First Fruits. On the 50th day, right, is the Feast of Weeks, because seven weeks have gone by during which you've been harvesting your crop, and that's essentially what it is. It's essentially a, another provision festival, the first one at the beginning of your harvest, the next one at the end of your harvest, and it becomes called Pentecost after a time because Pentecost is the Greek word for 50. So by the time the Jews enter uh, into like New Testament times, they're more typically calling it Pentecost than the Feast of Weeks. Now the Feast of Weeks is pretty expensive. I think I have bullet points about this here, Amanda. It requires two loaves of bread, seven one-year-old male lambs with no defects, one young bull, and two rams. Now that is in addition to, over and above, like the four quarts of grain that you turned into bread and all of these kinds of things that you, the four quarts of grain that were mixed with olive oil and the one-year-old lamb without defects and the jug of wine that you brought 50 days ago. In other words, are you starting to notice that this gets expensive, right? So if you followed all of the tithes and offering systems, if you were living in the Old Covenant and you followed all of like the sacrificial law and the offering law to the letter, you were giving closer to 40 to 50% of your income away every year. Okay, would you like to write a reconnect on that? No. Um, so, so, which is an interesting thing just to note is one of our professors at Moody always remarked that the reason that Islam swept the Middle East and Africa was because the tithe in Islam, does anybody know how much it is? It's 2%. So there may have been an actual financial reason as to why so many Jews and Christians converted um, as opposed to just 
something else, just as a fun fact that one of our professors always liked to talk about when we were at Moody. But notice the level of sacrifice that's being involved here, right? Uh, the feast is like the other ones, lasting, observance, practice every generation and wherever you live. But the other interesting thing, and we mentioned this last week, is that this feast includes a concern for the poor. So not only have you given all this stuff away, Leviticus 23 says at the end of the instruction for the Feast of Weeks that when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. This, this is the law that fed, for example, Ruth when she finds her way back into the land of the book of Ruth, right? So there's this concern for the poor. And again, think about it. That means at the beginning of the harvest, you gave a chunk. At the end of your harvest, you gave a chunk. And not even all of the harvest that was left was given for you because that's what was feeding the poor. Again, the level of just sacrifice that is involved in this is, is pretty intense. And in its original context, the Feast of Weeks is just another harvest celebration. It is a celebration after the fact of the Lord's material provision for his people. So the festival of first fruits that we looked at last week, it's like a pre-celebration of what the Lord's going to do. And then the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost would become like a post-celebration of the Lord's provision. But as we noted last week, these feasts through practice morphed and took on new meaning as they were practiced by Jewish people. And so over time, the Feast of Weeks became associated with another way that the Lord has provided for us, and that is through the giving of the law. The Israelites celebrate the giving of the law in the Feast of Weeks. And for that, that's why we're going to look at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. The timeline to getting to this point, God's nation Israel They've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God raises up a deliverer, Moses, and through Moses, God performs many signs and wonders. And the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he has worn down his resolve to keep the Israelites in Egypt, is worn down through these plagues. In fact, his resolve is broken, and he lets the people go. And we'll come back to this in a minute, but Exodus 12, 38 makes it very clear that it is not just ethnic Israelites who leave it is also Cushites and Egyptians. Exodus 12.38 says that a multi-ethnic throng left with them. It's as if the, some of the Egyptians kind of got the picture, right? Like, wow, this God seems way more powerful than our God. Perhaps the best way for us to have a hope in the future is to go with these people, and so they do. We'll come back to this, because that'll be important in a minute. So God leads Israel, uh, this great multi-ethnic multitude. He leads them through the waters of the Red Sea, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And when they arrive at Mount Sinai, the Lord descends to meet with them there. And this is where we get to Exodus 19, starting in verse 16. It says this, On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, a shofar, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet the foot of the mountain. Verse 18, all of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky. 
like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. There's wind and smoke and thunder and lightning and fire. And the Lord speaks. And Moses climbs to the top of the mountain and he meets with the Lord and he comes back down the mountain bearing the ten words, the ten commandments, the foundation of God's covenantal relationship with his people. This is what it's going to look like, the Lord says, for us to hang out together. We called it last week a DTR. It is Moses comes down the mountain with the law. He returns from the mountain with the word of God for the people of God. The Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, becomes associated with the giving of the law because of a few words in verse 16 that our eyes glazed right over. On the morning of the third day. The Feast of Weeks becomes associated with the giving of the law because the Israelites heard God speak in the wind and the flame and the thunder on what is Pentecost. Dr. Richard Booker notes that Jewish sages have traditionally taught that God gave the Torah to Moses on the day of Pentecost. It just happens to be when they got there. On the day that would become Pentecost. And so the Feast of Weeks which began as a celebration of the Lord's provision in the harvest, becomes about the Lord's provision in the law. Derek Tidball says, Much later, the feast became associated with the giving of the law, another of God's rich provisions for his people. One of the richest provisions that God has given us is his word. And the fivefold teachers in the room rejoiced. Um, Second uh, Peter 1, 3 through 4. This is a great passage. 2 Peter 1, 3, 4, 4. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his mar marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desire. Did you catch that? It says that God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. And where has he given us that? He has given it to us in his very great and precious promises. We don't have to wonder how to please God. We don't have to wonder what it takes to escape the world's corruption. God has given us everything we need to know about a life-giving, interactive relationship with him in the scriptures, in his word. We don't have to guess. We can know. We don't have to guess. We can know. And that's worthy of celebration. And so God's people celebrate. Psalm 119 is a celebratory psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, celebrating the word of God. It is an acrostic poem celebrating God's commandments, instructions, his precepts, and laws. Here's just a few, a few of those verses. How sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Your laws are my treasure. They are my heart's 
delight. How I delight in your commands and how I love them. I mean, change a couple of these words and send them to your girlfriend. You know what I mean? Send them to your wife. You're on a good track for the day. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I rejoice in your word like one who discovers great treasure. Your instructions are more valuable to me than millions in gold and silver. The law, these strange commands and instructions, and really all that God has said are cause for celebration because they lay open the path for people like us who are failed and flawed, people who love death. They lay open the path for us to live in the presence of the author of life. They teach us how to commune with the God of the universe. They reveal his will and his heart and his thoughts to us. Put another way, truth, truth sparks a party. And that is surprising because the truth is very often troubling. Truth is this objective standard that defies our attempts to distance ourselves from it with facts and maybe even alternative facts. Truth is an objective standard. It's, it's a referee that gets it right all the time and every time. And in the scriptures, we are given truth. Jesus himself says in John 17, 17, thy, let me borrow from the King James because it's better. Thy word is truth. The theologians, the black-eyed peas, say that truth gets the party started. At the center of the party is Jesus who is both the host and the guest of honor. We revel in truth because it tells us what the good life is. We revel in truth because it doesn't just tell us what the good life is. It tells us how to live it. We celebrate the truth because Jesus says truth sets us free. Truth is a celebration. Truth is a party. But oddly, many of us aren't good at behaving like we would expect partygoers to behave when it comes to the truth party. See, too many of us now in possession of the truth become defensive of it. We feel as though it is our job to defend the truth. So instead of celebrating, we defend. Instead of partying, we spend our time worrying. If God can defend himself from Christian nationalists and crit critical race theorists, from Republicans and de Democrats, from backwater hicks and coastal city elites, as if God needed our help, protecting his word, which Psalm 138 says, he has exalted above all things. Too many of us, now in possession of the truth, become judgmental and condescending, like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We refuse to enter the party, right? Because if we party, it might get in the way of us feeling special. It might get in the way of us feeling on the inside, morally superior to those who don't possess the truth. And so with the Pharisee, we say, I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner. Too many of us, now in possession of the truth, become librarians of theological concepts and archaeologists of dead historical fact. Ten years of biblical higher education, just so you know. Our precision, 
outpaces our celebration. And instead of being transformed by the truths we are, by God's grace, now in possession of, we are simply informed by them. Consuming podcast after podcast, sermon after sermon, book after book, collecting insight after insight, despite the fact that Jesus says the way that we celebrate truth is by putting it into practice. Jesus says his disciples are not those who collect what he says, but who practice what he says. Too many of us, now in possession of the truth, are apologetic about it. In the aftermath of the Roe v. Wade decision, I couldn't help but notice, among some, an apologetic tone. A lot of people on Instagram were saying things like, the journey for helping women is just beginning, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and, and they're right. The, the journey of helping women in our cultural moment really is just beginning, especially as kind of the field has moved to trans rights being something that puts women's rights in danger, a la J.K. Rowling and Twitter, if you're not familiar. And so what there was kind of, though, among some was, yeah, this bold declaration of we're going to keep going, but among others, I couldn't help but note an apologetic tone. We're so sorry that we're right. Let's do a lot of other things to make up for it. I think this is often the case, especially if, if you are in relationship with someone who identifies as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, whatever it is, there's a if you're holding on to an orthodox biblical position, there can be a tendency to apologize for that by saying, I wish I could think a different way. I've said that. And I've been convicted of saying that this week because I don't say, Jesus is Lord, and I wish I could think another way to make it easier for you. Right? Sometimes we come into possession of the truth, and we don't really know what to do with it, kind of in a pluralistic society, and so we become apologetic. Instead of defending the truth, or weaponizing the truth, or cataloging the truth, or apologizing for the truth, Jesus invites us to a party. Jesus invites us to celebrate truth by being transformed by truth. Truth starts a party, and the best way to celebrate that truth is to remember the words of Jesus in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not a concept or a standard, but a person. And like any birthday, it's really easy to celebrate that person when we keep that person at the center of the party. Have you ever noticed how weddings turn sour when it is more about like the father or mother of the bride or the father or mother of the groom? No? Okay, I have because I do weddings all the time and they're awkward, right? Um, have you ever been to a birthday party that feels way more about like the mom kind of creating this experience to impress her friends instead of maybe just like making their son or daughter know that they're loved when they turn 10? Right? So how do we keep the person 
at the center of the party. That's where Acts chapter 2 comes in. So flip over. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, says on the day of Pentecost, okay, the feast, here we are. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting, and then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each one of them, and every present, everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages that the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And at the time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem, and when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own language being spoken by the believers. The Bible is fascinating. The Bible is intentional, and it is built and crafted in such a way that speaks to the human genius with which it was written, right? And the divine purposes for which it was intended. And so what the Bible does is it takes a few key images and just uses them over and over and over again. And so things that happen earlier in the Bible reappear later in the Bible. Sometimes things that happen earlier in the Bible are stacked up in an event that happens later in the Bible. And, and that's what's happening here in Acts 2 and Pentecost. If you go back in like July of 2020, we started preaching the book of Acts. I did two sermons on Acts 2. And one of those sermons is on how the Tower of Babel out of Genesis 11 is undone in Acts chapter 2. Right, as everybody starts speaking languages to the glory of God. So that was one sermon. So the Tower of Babel is present in Luke two, in, in Acts chapter 2. Another thing that's present in Acts chapter 2 is this theology of the temple and God's dwelling place and how really in Acts 2 and at Pentecost, God is making his dwelling place among people and setting up his people to be his new temple. But there's a third thing that's happening here in Acts chapter 2. There's a third image that's kind of being brought back and retconned and kind of changed around to be given new meaning, and, and, and that's Exodus 19. And to help with that, I've made you a chart. So in the left column, we see everything that happens at the first Pentecost. God comes down, and then in Acts 2, we see what's happening in Acts 2 is Pentecost. And it's that one, the Holy Spirit comes down. In Exodus 19, the Lord manifests this flame, and Acts Two, the Spirit manifests this flame. Uh, in Exodus 19, there's thunder roaring and lightning flashing and wind, and then you see Acts 2, a uh, roaring of a mighty windstorm filling the house. In Exodus 19, you see God speaks from the mountain. God speaks from the mountain. God's voice speaks from the mountain. Acts 2 says, in Acts 2, it says God speaks from the mountain through his people. Because don't forget, by the way, that they're at a mountain in Acts 2. They're in Jerusalem, which is on top of Mount Zion. So we've got two mountains. It's not on the chart. If this sounds like a Bible Project episode to you, then I really feel like I won today. So just so you know, a mixed multitude. Here's God speak to them in Exodus 19. Remember in Exodus 12:38, I told you it says this multi-ethnic group of people came up out of Egypt with them. At least one of those group of people were Cushites, which was kind of a tribe living in Egypt at the time of Moses. And we can figure that out because Moses marries a Cushite woman, right? There's multiple ethnicities present. And there's multiple ethnicities present on the day of Pentecost. And all of them hear God speak to them. 
Um, uh, Psalm 29, 7, uh, that's, that's, that verse is usually translated, the, the voice of the Lord speaks through thunder. But actually, if you look at the contemporary Jewish Bible, it says the Lord speaks through flame. What you see in Exodus 19 is on repeat again in Acts chapter 2. As those gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai were this mixed group, those gathered on Mount Zion and Jerusalem are this mixed group, and they all hear God speak to them. The Bible is this intricately interwoven story that tells the story of Jesus. Jesus, who sends the Spirit, the promise of the Father, to guide us unto all truth and to remind us of everything that he says. Hear me again. In Acts chapter 2, the Lord provides yet again. The Lord provides the Holy Spirit. What does Luke chapter 11 say? How much more will your heavenly Father provide the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Because he's a good father, right? Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, he will come and he will remind you of everything that I have said. Jesus says he will come and he will guide you into all truth. Jesus adds another layer of provision through the gift of the Father, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, on that Pentecost in Acts 2, because the law left to its own devices brings death. But the Holy Spirit brings life, is what Paul says. The law, the word of God, left on its own, quickly goes from party starter to party pooper. The word of God, left on its own, is what turns us into catalogers of ancient truths and defenders of truth and weaponizers of truth and apologizers for truth because we've let it become this objective dead flat thing and so we become debbie downers there was a great skit for a series of years on saturday night live debbie downer they'd invite her to a party and everybody would be having a good time and then she'd interrupt conversation to talk about how her cat was just diagnosed with feline leukemia and then it would zoom in on her face, the camera would zoom in on her face, and you would hear, bwah, bwah. And see, here's what happens. Christians who engage with Scripture apart from the Holy Spirit become Debbie Downers. Right? And so we open Scriptures in public spaces, whether they be on Instagram or other places, and it comes across as a bwah, bwah, because our desire really isn't to celebrate. Our desire is to correct. Our desire isn't really to celebrate, our desire is to defend. Our desire isn't really to celebrate, our desire is to apologize. Our desire isn't to celebrate, our desire is to swap truths like nerds swapping Pokemon cards. Love you. <laughs> Our celebrations of truth apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit who's given us on Pentecost turns us with our celebrations of truth without the Holy Spirit, we become Debbie Downers or condescending Carls or apologizing Anns or defensive Dans. Our, with, when our celebrations of truth become less a celebration and more of a mobilization or a defensiveness or a weaponizing or an apologizing, it is a sign that the Spirit has left the party. Because it is the Spirit who makes the words of Scripture come alive. John Calvin said that where the word goes, the Holy Spirit goes. Where the Holy Spirit goes, where the word goes. And when we divorce those things, we are in trouble. If your, so let me, let me lay on this plane. If your relationship with scripture has come, become dry, 
or it doesn't really exist at all. If, as you are reading scripture, you find yourself thinking about others, if only this group of people in our culture would get this, if only this person in our church would understand this, if only this person would hear this podcast, if only this person would really hear this sermon, when, when we start to think of the third person instead of the first, if scripture has become more of a badge of correctness or the measure of somebody else's wrongness, it's because the spirit who brings life, the very spirit and presence of Jesus has left the party. If you find yourself tempted to apologize for what is true, it's because the spirit has left the party. And so a key practice to bring the spirit into the party is, uh, is something called the prayer of illumination. This is, uh, if you grew up in like a more traditional setting, a more Catholic setting, a more kind of high church setting, very often before the reading of scripture, there would be what's called the prayer of illumination where you're inviting the spirit to speak through scripture, right? That's something that we kind of lose in evangelicalism because we just assume that God is gonna speak through scripture and we don't wanna let anybody know that like our relationship with the word has become really dry because then I wouldn't be a good Christian anymore. But the key practice when we go to scriptures, it's why we pray before we preach here, is to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate, to like flick the light on about what we're about to read on the page and therefore apply that passage of scripture to our hearts, not to who we wish it would apply to, right? But to our hearts, the prayer of illumination brings Jesus back into the center of the party that truth gets started. And so this week, as you engage with scripture, um, I don't know if any of you are listening to like the Lectio 365 app. Some of us in our church use that. Um, they do a good job of a prayer of illumination, but it's really just opening your Bible and saying, Holy Spirit, I just invite you to speak to me through these words today. Holy Spirit, I just invite you to speak to me through these words today. And suddenly, he's welcome back at the party. The second thing I want to invite you to consider is how Paul says, it's kind of annual time to bring this conversation up, how Paul says, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit right? So there's a lot of debate in Christian circles about how many times you're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and there's kind of a group on one side arguing it's just one and done, and another group arguing that you need a second filling, and a certain part of that group that says you need a second filling, and you need to speak in tongues in order to prove what's true. I don't really care about either of those options. I just know that in Ephesians 5, Paul says, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit, he uses this verb that's an ongoing present tense that just keeps on going, just like the Browns keep on losing, just like the Guardians keep on winning, right? Okay, sports reference that I got accurately. Clearly the Holy Spirit is in this place. Um, we're to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so just want to invite you to even consider Generally, we're very good at receiving one of the two gifts offered to us on Pentecost, right? Generally, we're good at receiving one of the two gifts that are offered to us on Pentecost. 
right? And so some of us really like the Holy Spirit gift and let's woo-woo worship and let's do it. And then some of us really like, some of us really like the, the law that's given and we want to do Bible studies and get down deep. And what I'm saying is that the real party is when we bring both of those things together, just like when you're at Golden Corral and they say, would you like steak or lobster? And you can say both. Why would I choose? Why would I eat lobster at Golden Corral? I wouldn't do it. This is, this is not a coastal town. It's not fresh. So, so I want to just invite us into response time here to consider kind of where we're partying, where we're investing our time, and w what God's stirring in us. So I'm just going to lead us.